The sermon text today is Revelation chapter 17, verses 6 through 18. The Old Testament reading is Daniel 7, 15 through 28. Daniel 7, 15 through 28. Revelation 17, 6 through 18. Daniel 7, verses 15 through 28. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. As for me, Daniel, Daniel writing long before the coming of Christ. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Just prior to this, in the book of Daniel, we had a description of the visions that Daniel saw that involved four beasts which represented four successive kingdoms. And he is saying here that uh, this vision alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So explain to me, Daniel said, what this vision means. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I read this text this morning because the symbolism contained within it does stand behind uh, the sermon text for today, which is Revelation 17, verses 6 through 18. Let's go there now and read. There we read uh, John, uh, and we pick up in verse 6. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. 
The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So far the reading of God's most holy word. We do pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it as well. I think that most people would probably agree Uh, that this world is a messed up place. Uh, That's not to say that there is no good in it at all. Uh, Indeed, by the grace of God, there is good in this world. Uh, There's beauty to behold in this world. There are things that are rightly to be enjoyed in this world. There is truth to be found here. And there are people who do live virtuously. And there are even some who do worship God according to His Word, seeking to keep His commandments. And so, I am not saying that this world is is all bad and that there is no good in it at all. Uh, For this world, by the grace of God, that is both by His common grace shown to all and also by His saving grace, uh, God has not delivered this world entirely over to sin and to the effects of sin completely. Uh, There is something of the Creator that can still be seen within His creation. Uh, God is still active in this place. He, He shows grace to all, causing it to rain upon the just and the unjust alike. And indeed, it is in Him that we live and move and have our being, Acts 17, 28. And He has shown saving grace to some, redeeming them out of the world by the blood of Christ and by calling them to faith in Christ, by His Word and Spirit. And and so, with these things in mind, the Christian cannot be absolutely negative concerning this world in which we live. Indeed, we are sometimes moved to say, what a wonderful world this is. And I think we are right to say it, but in the moment that we say that, you know as well as do I, that it will not take long for some thing to happen or for some piece of news to reach our ears that does remind us that something is terribly wrong within this world in which we live. And I think the book of Revelation does, among other things, reveal to us what is wrong with this world. It reveals something of the source of the troubles that plague us in this world. The book shows us through its symbolic visions that behind all of the sin and suffering that we see in this world lies an ancient 
a cosmic and a spiritual battle. In the beginning, uh, Satan himself did rebel against God. And that dragon, that, that ancient serpent, did tempt man to rebel against God. But God, being rich in mercy, showed grace to fallen humanity. In His common grace, He did not immediately judge man fully and finally, but He does permit us to live, making His Son to rise upon uh, the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike, Matthew 5.45. And in His special and saving grace, He calls men and women, His chosen people, out of uh, this world to Himself, Another way to put it is that God is active even now in in building and in establishing His kingdom in this world, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But what is Satan doing even now, except seeking to overthrow the kingdom of God and to establish and to keep and to keep His? Here in uh, Revelation chapter 17, uh, we're learning more about how Satan works in this world. He does not always work directly to deceive his subjects and to hold them captive, but he often works through agents. In in Revelation chapter 13, we learned that the evil one, that is uh, there described as the dragon, works uh, using political powers to persecute the people of God. He also uses false prophets to deceive men and women. These two powers, political powers that persecute and false prophets, are there in the book of Revelation, symbolized by the beast that rose from the sea and also the beast that rose up out of the earth. Here in Revelation 17, we are introduced to a third agent. She is called the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, Revelation 17, 1. Her name is Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations, Revelation 17, 5. And she does symbolize the seductiveness of the world. She symbolizes money and power and fame and sexual immorality and every filthy thing that the evil one does use to pull upon the heart of man, drawing him away from the worship of the living God towards idolatry. And so now, here in the book of Revelation, we have presented to us a kind of false or counterfeit trinity. We have the beast from the sea. We have the false prophet We also have the harlot, and these three are working for the dragon, and they are laboring to compel men and women to worship not the one true and triune God, but the things of this world, and ultimately the dragon whom they serve. And So these figures are presented to us in the book of Revelation so that we might understand something of how the evil one works in the world. We know that there is an ancient, a cosmic, and a spiritual battle that does rage all around us. We do know that there is a kingdom of darkness and there is a kingdom of light. We know that the evil one is opposing God's kingdom always, but we know that God's kingdom is advancing in this world and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But how? How does the evil one uh, war? How does he seek to establish his kingdom? What are his tactics? What are his methods? Uh, The book of Revelation, through its symbolism, is giving us a picture of of that. We have this false trinity, this false trinity, political powers that persecute, false teachers, and also here the seductiveness of the world held before us as examples of the way in which the evil one does work in the world. Notice that the beast 
from the sea of Revelation chapter 13. And the harlot of Revelation chapter 17 are very intimately related with one another here in this passage that we are considering today. They have a kind of symbiotic relationship with one another where the one benefits from and promotes the activities of the other. And so we do have three, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, and the harlot. But it is the beast from the sea and the harlot who are intimately related to one another and who do work together in a most intimate way. The fact that the harlot is riding upon the beast indicates this. Uh, They represent different entities, of course, but they are in partnership with one another. The beast who represents political powers that persecute, and the harlot who represents the world and all of its seductive and sinful pleasures, they motivate one another and they do cooperate with one another in their effort to lead the people of God away and others away into idolatry. The harlot is seen here in Revelation chapter 17 riding upon the beast. Therefore, what do we have symbolized except for that she and all that she represents does drive the beast and all that it represents. She drives it as a rider does with a horse. And the beast then carries the harlot and thus empowers her as a horse does its rider. And so we see that there is some kind of relationship, intimate relationship that, uh, that, that exists between these two powers symbolized here in the book of Revelation. So something new, therefore, is revealed to us here in Revelation chapter 17 concerning the sea beast of Revelation 13. We've already been introduced to him, but here we learn more about how the beast operates in the world. First of all, we learn that political powers that persecute and the rulers that rule them are often driven by an insatiable desire for the pleasures of this world. Money, power, fame, sexual immorality, and every abominable thing. We, we learn that here, that what is driving them, what is driving the political powers that persecute? Well, it is the, the harlot of Revelation chapter 17 and all that she symbolizes. It is the seductiveness of the world that drives these political powers that do from time to time persecute the people of God. Two, we learn that political powers that persecute use not only brute force to make men comply with them, but also, and in partnership with the seductiveness of the cultures of this world symbolized by the harlot, they also use the promise of the same pleasures that they themselves enjoy to lure others into idolatry. And so the combination, I hope you are able to see, is a very powerful and deadly one. This is how the world works. This is how the powers of this world work. They say, conform to our ways, people. If you will not, we will use our powers to persecute you with force. And then they also say, conform to our ways. And you yourself, if you do, will enjoy the pleasures that we ourselves enjoy. We will share with you the money and the power and the fame and the sexual immorality and the like. And I do think that it takes a special kind of resolve to stand against temptation such as this and to overcome it. It takes faith. It takes faith in Christ and faith 
that what God's word says concerning the true nature of things is in fact true. That is the symbolism that we have here in Revelation chapter 17. I hope you're able to quite easily look out onto the world and say, I can see the power at work there in the world even in which we live. When John saw the image of this harlot, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, in partnership with the beast, uh, we learn in Revelation chapter 17, 6, that he marveled greatly. Uh, This does not mean necessarily that he himself was drawn to her, uh, but it does mean that he was impressed by her. He, in other words, recognized her seductive power. He recognized the way in which she, riding upon the beast, was a true threat to the church of God. The angel then said to John in verse 7, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And so what follows in this passage then is an explanation of the symbolism of these two figures, the beast with seven heads and also the harlot that has been seen riding upon the beast. First, the angel provides an explanation of the beast that carries the woman. And so we are, in a sense, going back uh, to the figure that was first introduced to us in Revelation chapter 13, and we are going to learn more about it. The beast that you saw, verse 8a, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction, the angel says. It is easy, I think, to hear the mockery of this member of the counterfeit trinity. Can you hear it in in the words of the angel? The angel is here mocking this member of the counterfeit trinity. Uh, The threefold expression was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction is meant to be contrasted with the description of the one true God that we heard in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him, that is from God, who is and who was and who is to come. God is, God was, and God is to come, Revelation 1.4. He is eternal. His life and power are without end. Also, I think we are to remember Christ's description of Himself in chapter 1, verse 18 of Revelation. Fear not, Christ said to John, I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. The beast, though impressive to our sight and even to John's sight, is nothing before God and Christ. That He was indicates that there was a time when His power was greater. That He is not indicates that His power has in some ways been broken and He is restrained at the time of John's writing of the book of Revelation. The beast, though still active in the world, was defeated at the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And that He is about to rise from the bottomless pit indicates that a day will come when this beast will be unleashed not to victory, but in order to go to ultimate judgment. And so can you hear the way that the beast is being mocked by this threefold phrase, the beast was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go to destruction. It's meant to be contrasted with our God and with Christ. In verse 8b we read, And the dwellers on earth 
whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And so here is the interpretation that I believe to be the correct one of the second half of verse 8. The beast, representing political powers that persecute the church, is restrained now. That is to say, he is not. God is restraining the political powers of this world from gaining too much power to thoroughly oppress the people of God. I think that describes the current state of things. That describes how things have been ever since Christ's first coming, ever since His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Why are we not utterly overrun by the world, brothers and sisters? It is because God is restraining evil in the world even now. At the end of time, though, this beast will be released for a while, and he will come against the people of God to overthrow them. Those of the world will be impressed by this. They are called dwellers on earth. Do you see it there in verse 8, the second half of it? They are called dwellers on earth, uh, for this is their home. That is their name, because this is their home. They are the ones whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When was this book written, brothers and sisters? It was written before even the world was created. And they marvel to see the beast. They are impressed by him at the end of time when he does rise from this bottomless pit and when he is loosed for a time. They are impressed by him. It is not that the world will have been without political powers that persecute between the time of John's writing and the time of the end. Indeed, that is always a present reality in the world. There are always political powers that persecute in this world. Indeed, the world will always have manifestations of the beast's power in it. But the beast is not now. His power is now restrained. But at the time of the end, he will be released. He will rise from the bottomless pit so that his power will grow in such a way that it impresses the earth dwellers. Here at the end of verse 8, the text says that the beast was and is not and is to come. It is the is to come which refers to the time where he will be released from the pit for a while to come against the saints of God and to be fully and finally judged then. And so here in verse 8, I think what we have is a kind of general overview of how the career of the beast will go in the world between Christ's first and second comings. He was, and he is not now, and he is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And again, he was, and is not, and is to come. These two phrases help us to understand generally how it will be that the evil one will be at work in this world through political powers that persecute. The angel then interprets the symbolism of the beast's seven heads. In verse 9 we read, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Notice uh, that there is a a kind of shift in the metaphor. The, the, The symbolism is very complex. It's not just that the Heads represent something, but the, he- the heads stand for something else, and the something else then uh, represents something. Uh, the angel says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now the question we must ask is not what do the seven heads represent, but what do the seven mountains represent? What do they symbolize? And I think the answer is very clear. Uh, these seven mountains represent Rome. Uh, 
Rome from ancient times and down even to the present is known as the city of seven hills. Uh, They are here called mountains because mountains symbolize power. Rome was the dominant world power in the first century AD when the book of Revelation was written. The seven churches to whom Revelation was addressed, they lived under Roman rule. The Christians of the first century did from time to time come under Roman persecution. They were oftentimes seduced and tempted by Roman prosperity. And so clearly the present manifestation of the beast's power for the original recipients of this letter was Rome. When those seven churches read the book of Revelation and they saw this imagery and when they heard that the seven heads are seven mountains, they said immediately, got it. The present manifestation of the beast's power in the world, at least for us, in our context, is Rome. It's Rome and all of its power and all of its persecuting power and all of its seductiveness. Uh, we, we feel it. We experience it our, ourselves. Uh, that is, uh, that it is upon the seven mountains that the woman is, is seated signifies that Rome has this seductive power in its economic and religious systems. Do you kind of do you get how the imagery is then working here, and how this book did speak uh, not just to those living at the end of time, but also to the original audience that received it? In verse ten, we read that the seven heads are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So, do you you see how complex the symbolism is here in the book of Revelation? The seven heads are seven mountains, and they also are seven kings. So, what do these seven kings uh, symbolize? The seven heads uh, also symbolize a succession of kings or kingdoms. From the perspective of the original recipients of the book of Revelation, we are told that five had fallen, one was, one was in power currently, and the other had not yet come to power and would remain only a short while. There are some, in fact very many commentators, as you know, who try to identify those kings with great precision. I'm sure you've heard some of these theories. And, and they therefore say that uh, this king, uh, these kings represent seven particular uh, Roman emperors, for example. Roman emperor so-and-so was number one, they say. And Roman emperor so-and-so was number six, they say. And Roman emperor number seven will be or was so-and-so. But I agree with those commentators such as Beale and Johnson who question the validity of such an approach. I think it is far better to see that the symbolism of the book of Revelation does not work with such precision, but often communicates truth in a much more general, a much more general way. The fact that commentators who seek such precision, the fact that they can rarely agree upon the proper numbering of Roman emperors, and the fact that all of their views are filled with certain problems should caution us against interpreting the text in such a way. I really don't want to get too bogged down here because I think it is a distraction ultimately. But here is a chart which shows five different ways which, in which commentators have attempted to number 
the Roman emperors according to the number seven or, or eight, as we will see in just a moment, found in Revelation chapter 17. Do you see the diversity of opinions that we find amongst commentators? Some begin with Caesar and end with Otho. Some begin with Caesar and end with Titus. Some say, no, we should begin with Emperor Augustus and end with, with Vitellius. Is that how you say it, I think? Others begin with Augustus and end with Domitian. Some begin with Caligula and end with Domitian. Uh, questions emerge. Should we start with the very first one and, and just go down, or should we only count those who were very active in persecuting uh, God's people, and so on and so forth? I think it is far better to take the number seven as symbolic for completion. The recipients of the book of Revelation were living, historically speaking, near to the end of the succession of kings, or better yet, kingdoms, symbolized by the seven heads of the dragon. I want to just quote from Dr. Dennis Johnson in his commentary, because I think he puts it so well. He says, The solution to the puzzle may be simpler. If understanding the message of the seven or eight kings is not dependent on historiographic, that is, we shouldn't assume that people should be able to have an expertise on, on history and, and the writings of history in, in order to understand uh, the letter, the, 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 the symbolism of the seven kings here. Um, seven symbolizes completeness, he says. So it shows that the beast's reign apparently holds sway over the whole history of fallen humanity. Isn't that true? That there have always been kingdoms in this world who do, do tend to persecute God's people. Yet from the perspective of God's plan to establish His kingdom under the scepter of the Lamb, the beast's time is drawing short. Five out of seven already have fallen from the perspective of the first century audience. To be sure, John's readers are not yet at the very end of the conflict of the ages. The one king who has not yet come and must remain a little while shows that though the dragon has been decisively defeated by the blood of the lamb and therefore has only a short time, nevertheless the church must be prepared to endure further suffering. I think that is how the symbolism of the book of Revelation works, not with such precision, so that we must say this one represents that one in history. But more generally, we have a very clear message communicated to to us here. Uh, The beast has always been at work in this world through political powers that persecute. You Roman citizens are near to the end of the progression of empires uh, as we consider uh, human history. But you're not at the very end of it yet. The church is still going to encounter difficulty in this world. The, The church is still going to have to bear up under this kind of pressure and we must prepare ourselves for that. I think this is the right approach. In verse 11... We read, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. And so after the seventh king does reign, the beast himself will reign as number eight. When the text says that it belongs to the seven, it does not mean that he is to be numbered along with the seven, but that he is of the same kind. Better yet, the seven are, as the, are of the same kind as the beast, who is number eight. In other words, they are cut from the same cloth. I think that is the meaning of the phrase. At the end of time, when the beast rises from the bottomless pit, the political powers on earth will persecute the people of God in such a way that it will be right to say that the beast himself does reign, and then he will go to destruction. Do you get the imagery? 
There will always be political powers that persecute in the world, but near to the end of the time, the beast will rise from the bottomless pit, and the political powers that persecute will do so so intensely, and in a way that is so devoted to the purposes of the beast, that it is right to say that now the eighth king has arrived, though there will probably be many kings, and it is the beast himself who does persecute the people of God at the end of time. The way that John talks about the beast here, I think, is very similar to the way that he talks about the Antichrist and his other writings. Uh, remember that John is famous for telling us that uh, right now there are many Antichrists in the world, but he did also speak of a time when the Antichrist would come, would appear. The same principle applies to the beast. The beast is always active in the world through political powers that persecute and through the seductiveness of the world. But there will come a time when the beast himself will oppose the people of God in a most resolute and intense way. In verse 12, things get even more complex. We read, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These ten horns symbolize kings who will receive authority as kings for how long, brothers and sisters? For one hour, right? This reference to ten kings who will reign reign only briefly is another way of referring to the seventh king of verse 10, of whom it is said, when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And so at the end of time, there is going to be a king or a group of kings who do reign briefly in intense cooperation with the beast himself. In other words, the seven kings do not represent individual kings, but kingdoms. The ten kings refer to a cooperation of kings and kingdoms at the end of time, who being empowered by the beast, who will rise from the bottomless pit, will persecute the people of God. The number ten, like the number seven, is not to be taken literally or interpreted with such exact precision, but also communicates the concept of completion. Uh, The number 10 has also been used in the book of Revelation to stand for a complete, intense, but brief period of persecution for the church. I want you to think all the way back to the letter written to Smyrna where Christ did say, Do not fear what you are about to suffer, Christians living in Smyrna. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. When we studied that passage, we said that this was not uh, literally saying that the persecution would last only ten days, but it was communicating to the church in Smyrna that in their future, they would endure an intense period of persecution. It would be a complete period of time, but it would be limited and brief and they were to endure through it. Uh, The ten kings of Revelation 17 therefore stand for the end of time world powers that in a most intense way and being motivated by the beast himself being released from the pit, they will seek to overrun the church of God that does remain in the world. Verse 13, these ten kings are of one mind. What have they agreed upon, brothers and sisters? Uh, They probably have much uh, not in common. There's probably much that they do not agree agree upon, but they are of one mind. They are agreeing upon this, that it is time to persecute God's people. It is time to oppose God's rule and reign and kingdom in this world. And who are they in agreement with? Not only themselves, but the beast himself. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast, the text says. 
And so they are of one mind in this regard. Verse 14, they will do what? They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. This is why their reign is so brief, only for a day. This is why that seventh king only reigns for a short while. It's because though they are permitted to oppose God's people in such an intense way, they are almost immediately judged by Christ Himself. The battle at the end of time will be between the beast and his army being led by these kings, this this cooperation of kings uh, who compose all who are of this world. That is what the army of the beast is composed of. And the battle is between them and the Lamb and His army composed of all of the elect. As you know, uh, the book of Revelation does recapitulate. It it gives us different vantage points on the same uh, event over and over again. And so it should be no surprise to you that we will be given another picture of this end-time battle later in the book of Revelation. Turn over just a couple of pages to Revelation chapter 19, verse 17. Revelation chapter 19, verse 17. Uh, And it's there that we hear John say these words, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that flew directly overhead. This is at the very end of time. And what does the angel say? Come, gather for the great supper of God. He's saying this to the birds, to the vultures, if you will. Come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And then here we have it again. So kings have been destroyed. They have been destroyed by God at Christ's second coming. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, the other beast of Revelation 13, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so do you get the general idea of what's being communicated here Brothers and sisters, we're being given a general picture of how human history is going to go from the time of Christ's first coming on to the end. In particular, we're being given from time to time a very close look at what will happen on uh, that last day. The message is this, in human history, the dragon has always been active, Revelation 12. He works through his agents, the beast, the false prophet, Revelation 13, and also the harlot of Revelation chapter 17 who rides upon the first beast. And what do these three do, this false trinity? Well, they oppose God, His kingdom, and also His people. There has been a never-ending succession of world powers symbolized by the beast and the harlot together who do threaten the people of God with their strength and do seduce them with the pleasures that they hold forth. At the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, Rome was that power. The succession of powers has continued from that time and will continue to the end of the world. Nearer to the end of the world, there will be an intensification of this power when the beast is released from the pit where he is now restrained. He will persecute the people of God through his ten kings, 
the persecution will be brief, and then the beast and his kings will go to destruction. That's what the book of Revelation teaches. And it is helpful, isn't it? I I do in some ways uh, pity those preachers and those pastors who try to push the book of Revelation beyond what it is meant to go, and who do begin to uh, move on into the realm of, of speculation, trying to speak with more precision than what the book of Revelation does allow us to speak, either concerning the Roman kings of the past, but especially I have in mind here concerning uh, predictions about the future, saying that this current political power or this current political figure is the beast of, of Revelation chapter 13, or this person is the harlot of Revelation chapter 17. The book is not meant to work in that way. And I do feel, in a way, for those who go beyond the scriptures, I sometimes sit and I wonder, what will their grandchildren and great-grandchildren think when they read their books? You know, What will they think when they read their books and they see that, you know what, great-grandpa was wrong all the time, and he was proved wrong by history. I think it is better not to go beyond the scriptures, but just to draw out of the text what is clearly being communicated here. And here, I think that is the thing I've presented to you uh, this morning. And it is helpful, because it helps us to know how, how to prepare ourselves to live in this world. It, are, are these the, the, the last days? Well, yes, the entire time between Christ's first and second coming are the last days. But I know what people mean when they ask this question. They, they, they mean this, will Christ return very, very soon? He might. I don't know. But ultimately, it doesn't matter, because we know what to expect, and we know that our God reigns supreme. We know the end of the story, and that should bring great comfort to us as God's people. In verses 15 through 17, we have a brief explanation of the symbolism of the woman. In verse 15, we read, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Uh, The prostitute was said in verse 1 to be seated on many waters, remember? And do remember that the imagery of many waters, it conjures up thoughts of Babylon who was situated on the Tigris and Euphrates, and and Babylon has uh, a symbolic significance now uh, for us uh, and does in the Scriptures. It even conjures up images of Egypt situated on the Nile. Uh, That she is seated on these waters indicates her authority. Uh, When a king is said to be seated on his throne, what does it mean except he has taken power? He has authority now. When Christ was seated at the right hand of of the Father in heaven, what are we saying except that he now has been given power and authority? And so when this harlot or prostitute is said to be seated on many waters, it signifies the power and authority that she has over the kingdoms of this world. The waters that you saw where the prostitutes seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. I think it's very worth noting that she has authority not over over one nation, but many. The symbolism of this passage cannot be confined, therefore, only to Rome or to any other world power, but has universal and timeless significance for us. Verse 16 reveals something surprising, though. Uh, Here, there we read... And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast together will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh 
and burn her up with fire. And so we do have a twist in the plot, if you will, here in verse 16, because so far the only thing we have been shown is how the harlot and the beast do enjoy a very intimate relationship with one another. They both serve one another and seek to further one another's purposes. That is the image that we have so far. But here in verse 16, we see that in the, at the end of time, when these ten kings do reign, something else is going to happen. The beast and his kings are going to turn on the prostitute to devour her. The world power symbolized by the beast and the harlot will somehow at the end of time self-destruct, I think, is what we are to see. The political powers will turn on the culture itself to devour it. And this takes some thoughtfulness, but really it's not hard to imagine how uh, this could be. I think we have seen examples of this kind of thing in human history with the rise and fall of nations. The most obvious example that comes to my mind is Nazi Germany. You know, and so there you see a uh, politi- uh, political power that, that grew very strong. And of course, at the beginning, it did work very closely with, with uh, the seductiveness of the world in order to draw people into it, in order to gain momentum, didn't it? It, it worked very closely with German culture at that time. And so there was this symbiotic relationship between the military powers that Hitler did have and also the seductiveness of the culture itself. And it went well, according to them, for a while. But in the end, because it is wicked to the core, what does happen except that the whole thing just kind of unravels and the military powers do end up devouring the culture itself and leading it to ultimate destruction. So just imagine something like that happening not with one nation in an isolated way, but on a global scale, not with just one nation or king at the lead, but with a a, a cooperation of kings and kingdoms. Uh, Why does this happen? Why the self-destruction? Verse 17, For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. I, I... This is so encouraging, brothers and sisters. Here we are beginning to see this this, this vision of of a very chaotic and and kind of scary uh, situation that will come to pass at the end of time. Right? Do you see it? Do you kind of feel it? I think some of you are probably sitting here now going, I hope we're not here to see it. Um, Will we be? I don't know. Um, But what does verse 17 tell us? God is in control. He is still seated upon his throne. In fact, he is permitting all of this and he is also involved in bringing it all to destruction. And he will fully and finally judge himself in an active way at the end of time. But also, he will judge by simply giving men over to the sinfulness of their hearts. And what happens when men are given over to the sinfulness of their hearts except that all manner of death and destruction does follow along rather naturally in the course of time. Same sort of thing that happened when uh, God did harden Pharaoh's heart to bring about his greater purposes. Uh, So too will he put it into their hearts at the end of time to carry out his purpose. Verse 18, And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. It was Babylon in the days of Israel's captivity. It was Rome in the days of the early church. Uh, There are manifestations of the beast in our day too. Uh, Who it will be at the end of time, only God knows, and I don't think it matters. We don't need to know. 
There's no point in speculating about it. What we need to know has been clearly communicated in here, and what is the point of it all? Be faithful to Christ Jesus until the very end. God is sovereign. We are to take comfort in this, and we are to be faithful to Christ Jesus until the very end. What is the other option for you? To go in with the beast and the false prophet and the harlot? Is that what you want to do now that you have been shown what their end is? No, we're not to go in with them. Their end is death and destruction. We are to remain faithful to Christ, for in the book of Revelation we will also be shown what the end is for those who are with Christ on that last day. And so, brothers and sisters, these visions are given to us so that we might see the world for what it truly is. Yes, it is true that in many ways the world is filled with the glory of God, and we should rejoice in that and enjoy it properly but it is all twisted up by sin. It is bent away from God and towards evil. There is a power at work in this world that is satanic in its origin. We must recognize it. And so we should not be completely negative in our view of the world, for by the grace of God there is much good in it, but neither should we be naive as followers of Christ. The Christian is therefore to live in the world, but is to never be of it. Worldly powers do tend away from God and towards evil. The cultures of this world are seductive and promote not the worship of the one true God, but idolatry. We must see this. The principle is, is what, this principle is what undergirded Paul's famous words to the Christians at Ephesus uh, when he said this, and with this we will close from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. To the Christians at Ephesus, he said, and you Christians were dead and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. When you followed the course of this world, you followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were then, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him, where? Not on earth, but in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And the message for you today, brothers and sisters, is this. Let us walk in the good works that Christ has prepared for us. Let us be faithful to Him on to the very end. Let us bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the visions of revelation given to John and through him to us. Uh, They are a vivid and sometimes alarming depiction of how things will go in this world from Christ's first coming on to the end of time. Lord, I do pray that the book of Revelation and these visions would have its proper effect upon your people. That is, to not lead them to fear, but to confidence and to courage. That they would indeed be overcomers in Christ Jesus, as you have called them to be. May we consider these things. May we be sober about them, Lord. But may we be strengthened in our faith. 
so that we might stand up in the face of persecution, so that we might resist the seductiveness of this world, so that we might stay true to Christ at all costs. Lord, for us, it is the only way. And we are asking, Lord, that you would make us to stand. We are wholly dependent upon you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we say these things, and all of God's people do say, Amen.